Welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. I've got Devin here who's been gone for a while. He moved to California where he's going to live the dream as a famous filmmaker who will... <laughs> awesome apartment, by the way, Devin. <laughs> what are you up to, man? You're gone. You've been gone for like two weeks, three weeks. I have been gone. Uh, th- things have been way uh, tougher in terms of just relocating. was, you know, of course, harder than I um, uh, predicted it would be in this area, but... No, things are finally getting settled. Um, still really don't have any furniture or anything like that, but at least, uh, you know, all the illegal stuff is taken care of, insurance and all that messy part and all that's taken care of. So for the most part, I've just been trying to settle in, uh, meeting up with a few people around L.A. and stuff like that, starting to talk about projects and trying to get my nose into some things. So uh, for the most part, I really have nothing to report on other than the fact that I've just been, like, driving and moving and, like trying to get everything trying to get my life in order really is what i'm trying to do so oh, that sounds... other than that there's not a there's not a whole lot to report on here it's a i'm in a barren room by myself <laughs> this sounds miserable man <laughs> i mean i don't know i guess good luck to you moving to a new city especially when you don't have any furniture in there i see yeah. you brought your air purifier in the background like, <laughs> yeah, like I, didn't, right. I didn't bring a couch a chair or anything no. to sleep on but i have this air purifier just in case no, that well, that dude, that was strictly as as needed uh just because of the the way things worked out the the apartment was a little bit smelly the previous guy was a smoker so i ended up buying that once i was here but amazon two day and one day shipping have come in real handy over the past week so on my end, I've just been doing mostly green screen work. This is uh, some of the shots and how they've turned out uh, for this car scene. I shot it all in green screen, and then they came back and said we wanted it to be daylight instead of night. So I had to go back and recolor touch everything, add some wow. bokeh balls in the background, and uh, recolorize all of this. It's turning out pretty good. Um, a lot of freaking work for a four-minute scene inside of a freaking feature <laughs> length. So great job there, guys. Thanks for putting me through all that. But they're they're banned, <laughs> so whatever. Uh, yeah. I think right now, though, it's probably best to just jump right into the news. What do you think, Devin? Yeah, let's get to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. First off, I gave Mitch some time to weigh in on the Canon 5D Mark IV announcement, and I would love to get your opinion on this camera, Devin. It's out. It's about. It is sexy. People are excited, angry, upset, and all around happy about this camera. There's a lot of feelings uh, when it comes to the 5D Mark IV. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get your input on this camera. What do you think about uh, the 5D Mark IV? Well, I think for the most part, it shows that uh, Canon is not willing to cannibalize our cinema line at all. Um, I think what we're seeing is like a few good things like, hey, we've got 4K um, and it's DCI 4K and it doesn't support at this time UHD 4K, which to me tells me that uh, they're they're building this camera around uh, narrative work, around small projects. They aren't necessarily like like this is going to be an event camera or something like that, like uh, the 5Ds have been kind of used for in the past for some people. I mean, also limiting that recording time to, to 30 minutes, that shows that it works great in the short shooting format of narrative, maybe certain documentary work and stuff like that. But if you're talking reality TV, wedding, event coverage, uh, the 5Ds is not going to fit that bill. And I, I think I'm completely fine with that. Um, some other people may be disappointed because they want to get an all-around uh, good camera out of their hybrid DSLR, and I think that's really asking too much, uh, especially from Canon at this time when they've already taken care of the video market 
uh, pretty well with their C series. Whether or not you like the C cameras, which DJ has his opinion on the the cinema line, but still, in terms of Canon's eyes, they're taking care of the video guys just fine. So they, I feel like they really don't care about making this a hybrid camera. The 422 color space is good to see. Everyone is blowing up about the motion JPEG, but at 500 megabits per second, for me, the motion JPEG is like, okay. I mean, at those bit rates and everything else, it's going to come out looking great. The 4K and everything else is going to look fine. I don't know, yes, man. It's, it's not a very uh, efficient Kodak. Wouldn't you want to it, transcode it, this into something that's a little bit smaller and a little less unruly when, you know, when uh, you're done? It, potentially, I mean, for the most part, I think that the motion JPEG is going to be easy to edit with uh, because you're not you, you don't have uh, uh, temporal information. It's not like H.264 or something like that where it's kind of complicated to decode. These files are very easy to encode and decode. Part of that's because they're older technology, but part of that too uh, is because of the way that the codec is. So for me, I go, yeah, these are huge files. It's kind of unruly. But, you know, there's people who shoot ProRes on a Blackmagic who, you know, has pretty ridiculous bit rates as well for half of its files. So for me, I don't think that that is, uh, yeah, it would have been nice to see maybe a more compressed codec, something that works better for people that are run and gun. But like I said, I really see them aiming this at people who are doing kind of, I guess, indie film projects, but have enough resources that something like 500 megabits per second isn't that big of a deal to them. I think more than anything, the real problem here is that the external recording, there's no 4K option because I feel like you lose a lot in that compared to something like an A7S or something like that. So if you wanted to do ProRes or something like that, you have the the ability to be like, oh, we'll just shoot with the 5D. We'll record to something else. And that way we don't have to deal with the motion JPEG if you don't want to. So it's weird. They're kind of locking it in. But I feel like Canon kind of built it for one narrow case use just to make sure it doesn't take away from their cinema series. So what do you think about the crop factor on this guy in 4K? Are you, are you okay with that? <laughs> no, I think that's pretty worthless, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> the, the whole reason why people waited around for this camera was, uh, was one, the 4K, which, okay, they hit. Even if it's not broadcast 4K and it's DCI, which isn't a bad thing. You can always crop later, but in certain circles, that's like, okay, what's the point then if I, I don't have that format? But bringing it down to an APS-C size sensor... I feel like if you just wait a year, there'll be like a much cheaper 7D or something like that that's going to shoot 4K, and it's going to have the same crop factor. So it's like you might as well just go in that area. There's no point in necessarily getting this unless the low light, and for some reason, all of your Canon glass needs to be here and needs to work well. This was the camera for me that I was waiting for to make a decision on. I've sort of dipped the water or dipped into the water a little bit with the uh, Sony A7S and bought some lenses, but not too many lenses. But I still have my entire Canon kit of glass. And I was either going to just spring for the 5D Mark IV when it came out, if it met my needs, or either dig deeper into the Canon or the uh, Sony lineup or move further away from that into something else. And after this hit, if you look at prices, check this out. The five or the C five hundred is now dropping down to the six thousand dollar range, which is incredibly uh, attractive. Uh, the mm-hmm. the C three hundred is is down in the in the two thousand to three thousand dollar range, which is just crazy. Here's one for thirty three hundred, uh, thirty four hundred. Buy it now. I mean, that's nuts. And uh, the one DC 
which is what I've got my eye on right now, has dropped in price. Uh, they they bounce around between three and four thousand dollars. And if I'm going to spend that much on another body, <laughs> I think I'm going to go with right. the C, uh, the DC, the one DC because the one DC it doesn't have the touchscreen and some of the new features. Same Kodak, same four two two color space, four K mm-hmm. shooting, and it's a one point two crop as opposed to a one point seven four. I think for me, since I do less photography, the 5D Mark IV isn't as attractive, but it helped me decide which direction to go next. I think, honestly, if you're a video shooter, the A7S Mark II is still where it's at if you want full frame. And And that is what a lot of people are saying. I think, really, when you look at the specs from a distance here, um, with the autofocus and they finally getting 422 color space, which is something that, like, the Sony doesn't have, uh, but in terms of like usability and everything else, I see why people go with the Sony. For me, this looks like the perfect camera as a crash cam for large cinema productions. I mean, that doesn't help out any indie filmmakers who got their start on a Mark II. All those people who are like probably at this point like nostalgic about the days that DSLRs really took off for video work. But the fact that it's only DCI, but it has 422 color space and it shoots in this large format makes me go, you know what, a full-size production crew this would be their crash cam or this would be like their mounted camera or something like that. Cause they're already running around with reds and other cameras with uh, cannon glass on it. You might as well throw this into the mix as a crash cam. The part that it doesn't work in that regard though, is the, like the lack of log and the fact that like yeah. they have the cinema line with all the cinema logs and they don't put log in here. And I go, okay, those big productions are not going to take your camera seriously. Cause they go, well, how are we going to mix match this with our other camera? Like, it just makes it that much harder because you finally have 422 color space, which I've talked a long time about 422 being necessary to do log a, well. Oh, and it gives you a lot more flexibility when you're color grading, too. That, yeah, the absolutely. The difference is, is way, way noticeable when you're starting to push colors back and forth. Uh, wh- now, what do you think about uh, this camera for the price? Because we're looking at $3,500, basically, for the 5D Mark IV, and we've got the A7S Mark II at about $2,900. We've got the GH4 down to about $800, and then we've got uh, several other kind of in-between cameras uh, that are filling in the gaps from both Sony and Panasonic that are even cheaper than that. Uh, Is this in the right price range, or do you think it's too high compared to its competitors? I, I think that for a 5D, for a photographer, it's reasonably priced. I think if you only look at it for video production purposes, it's not worth it. No one's going to buy this just for video production. Uh, when they had the Mark II, they had something that no one else had at the time, so everyone paid that price for video production. Uh, in this sense, though, like you were pointing out, their C300, gosh, the C100s have fallen in such price. Yeah, you may not get 4K, but in terms of a camera with all your XLR inputs, power options, and everything else, while also being still kind of a small compact form factor, it's like you might as well just go with one of those for the price because you're going to get a better experience. You're going to get scopes and LUTs and everything else. And like if you go with a C300, you'll be getting you know SDI outputs and things like that. So uh, it's it's very clear here that they didn't want to build a video camera when they made this. Unlike the Panasonic line where they go, hey. Uh, we want our hybrid camera to be really good at video and photos. I feel like Canon here is like just kind of doing the bare minimum. They're kind of throwing in things that are a little different than the other guys just so they have a unique unique place in the market. But here they didn't build a video camera and they're charging a lot for not a whole lot in terms of video features. So I think there's much better directions to go 
um, especially with what may be coming out uh, later this year or early next year. Now, last thing before we move on, uh, the low light performance for the Sony a7S Mark II is pretty phenomenal, uh, and it kind of stomped on the throat of Canon's uh, previous <laughs> models, uh, so to speak. Uh, what do you think about the 30 megapixel sensor and uh, the low light quality that they've been showing in these like little demo videos and so on? Do you think it's that much of an improvement? Is it, have they caught up with the a7S Mark II? Uh, I mean, I, I didn't have like raw files on my hard drive to pixel peep. I think for the most part, it, they, it, they got close enough to, uh, a7s Mark II territory that, you know, people, it, it, it stops becoming like, oh, well, if you want to do low light, you have to go with this Sony camera. It, it's like the other five D's were like really good at low light too. Maybe not as good as the Sony when they came out the a7s, but you know, that was a newer camera, newer technology. So I feel like in this case, they're close to it, close enough that I don't care anymore, and I would just consider both low-light cameras, and I just put them in that category. Uh, but I guess for people who pixel peep, I think the A7S, I think, still wins out. All right, now let's talk about another camera that we're excited to hopefully hear about at Photokina. And we got this blurred out here. It's a weird little picture. But the GH5 has been kind of on the radar for quite a while. Everybody knows it's coming. We see the GH4 continue to drop in price. And now we're getting some uh, leaks from microfourthirdsrumors.com about possible specs for this guy. Uh, we were seeing possibly a 16-megapixel sensor, so similar to previous generations. Uh, mm-hmm. No-crop 4K a 10-bit 4.2.2 internal recording, which is, sounds pretty sexy, and hopefully 5-axis image stabilization. Uh, what do you think we'll see the price of the GH5 at, Devin? Does $1,600 to maybe 2000 sound pretty reasonable? I was, I was going to say 1800 I think that's probably, you know, in line with what you're thinking, that's probably the close, uh, the mark that they're probably going to hit. And I feel like they'd be justified in asking that much they've always gone a little bit cheaper um than some of the competition but that's because they aren't full frame remember we're still talking about micro four thirds we're talking about a 2x crop uh so and i think that that's what they're addressing in this camera Uh, so far there's been no news on 6k like you wanted (laughs) uh, which which would be brilliant and could fit on a 16 megapixel but i think it's just too much data right now well no crop at 4k though so that would be uh scaling uh internally right so we'd go from a 2.3 crop down to basically a 2.0 crop yeah basically a 2 i think the old gh2 had a 1.8 crop because it had a weird sensor that was both tall and wide huh uh but they stopped doing that when they went to the gh3 uh, so, I mean, I'm really excited to see that there is no crop on the 4K for this kind of camera, so it brings it back out wide. It makes it easier to go wide in 4K mode when you want to. The 10-bit 422 is the part that's really exciting to me because I've spoken a long time about how shooting log all the time is usually not the best solution when you only have 8 bits of color. Shooting a situation that's already generally flat in terms of exposure, you're not gaining a lot by shooting log. You're just dropping off extra information. By finally going 10-bit, and 422, it justifies shooting log every time you shoot if you're a person who's going to go into post and do all that stuff. Because like we discussed, you, sometimes you don't always need to go into post and color correct and go crazy with that stuff. But if you're the kind of shooter that does, this justifies shooting log all the time. Otherwise, when I'm on 8-bit, I rarely shoot log unless I'm really dealing with an extreme exposure situation that I'll have to mess with in post. And that's just so I get more color information and more detail in my other shots that aren't log. 
because uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Now, if you go to an external recorder that's doing ProRes 10-bit, everything else, then shoot log all the time. But this kind of allows you to not have to use an external recorder uh, if you're happy with the H.264 that they're implementing here. No talk of H.265. So it seems like we're just going to get an H.264 in this one. But the 10-bit 422 tells me, yeah, it's going to have the information you need. It's, you know, if it's kind of doing the same bit rates we saw in the GH4, uh, that's more than I think is reasonable for a lot of people who use this kind of camera, which is usually like web productions or small short film shoots and stuff like that. So uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to have the five axis image stabilization, even though that hasn't been leaked yet. You know, they're probably saving it for something big. (laughs) Uh, And there's been reports that it will probably have better low light performance than the uh, the GX85 or whatever where the sensor hailed from because it'll have better cooling and better processors and stuff like that on it. I hope that the GH5 is impressive. I've invested a lot in my Micro Four Thirds uh, <laughs> lenses, and I do, you know, even though I complain a little bit about uh, the GH4 and the crop factor, as a tool and a backup camera and as a second camera to my A7S Mark II, I've I've enjoyed shooting with it, and it's so easy to use that I, I, I don't want to get rid of a Micro Four Thirds camera anytime in the near term. Uh, plus, uh, even if you need shallow depth of field, I've, I, I do have those super sexy 0.95 lenses. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that gives you enough. I think it's yeah. a gr- still a great format, a little more low-light performance. If we could get to 3200 ISO, I would be happy with that mm-hmm. for the GH4. Oh, yeah. And uh, the in-camera image stabilization, uh, I've been, I love that in the A7S Mark II. Uh, if they can give that to me, mm-hmm. that would totally be worth the upgrade. As far as the color space goes, you know, I haven't been that unhappy with the GH4 mm-hmm. as far as color goes. It's a little, it's not as um, beautiful right out of the uh, camera as my Canon cameras were back in the right. day. So maybe that extra color space would give me a little more room to push it around and uh, bring it to where I need to, especially in the flesh tones department. Now, let's talk about, this is not camera related, by the way, guys. This is just something really freaking cool that I am excited about. Uh, If you guys know me, you know I manufacture a few things here and there. I've got 3D printers and lasers and uh, CNC tables. Well, this is a CNC router with image recognition that is basically capable of looking at a surface with these uh, taped uh, indicators on there, um, mapping the surface out, and then allowing you to cut by basically tracing a line on your surface that you're working on. And the head of the unit actually moves around to compensate for the position as you try to just shift it in place using these markers. It's about $1,500 right now, and I think it jumps up to $2,200, but holy cow is this thing sexy. You want to start CNCing uh, tables, uh, furniture, anything like that, um, an entire piece of plywood is what you could work on without any issue. Devin, I said this to you kind of like uh, just at <laughs> random, and I saw it, and mm-hmm. it, it, was, it amazed me. What do you think? Are you about ready to uh, move into machining? You know what? If if I did, this would be uh, the perfect way to do it. Um, this this is like kind of what's kept me away from building CNC is in order for like CNC to really be productive. It depends on the size of your table and the size of your table takes up space and it costs a lot of money. Um, oh, I think what the most incredible part about this is like the price. They had an early backer thing that I was think was maybe like 800 or something like wow. that right now. They're pre-ordering for 1200. Um, that price is super impressive when you consider how much a normal CNC costs. 
Uh, and what's interesting here is that, like, no, um, I'm sure you could find, of course, bigger and better CNC machines in terms of automating and getting stuff done. But for most of us, uh, average Joes like me and you who just, you know, occasionally, like, put some stuff together and work on some wood stuff and you aren't pounding out, you know, 50 chairs a day. Uh, something like this is absolutely perfect because it's small. You can like just store it in the corner of the garage. It doesn't take up any room and, uh, they kind of make it idiot proof. I love the way they've like combined a handheld router, uh, with the technology of a CNC to provide this like really easy experience. Cause in the past, uh, since I can't, you know, necessarily afford the size of a giant table, I've always just like hand routed stuff, which, you know, sometimes goes okay. Sometimes turns into a mess. Um, <laughs> And so I just I think it's really, really cool technology because it's really kind of taking both tools and combining them into something that's way better than both of them in terms of a use case of like average people like me and you who just want to pump out some woodwork every once in a while. I think it's absolutely perfect for that because you don't need the space like that's I think I think what they really hit on the head is that like you take away the space, you take down some of the cost. And I think they have a real winner here. And I would love to like. I, I would hope I see these guys in like Home Depot and stuff like that because it literally <laughs> looks like the operation is super easy to use. Like you don't have to get crazy either about like how yeah. you tape it down. It's automatically doing image recognition and everything else. I think that, you know, barring we haven't seen any reviews of people who've used it, but I think this is really already a winner. It already looks like a well-polished They've product. already had some demos out on Tested and a few other uh, uh, try-it-out DIY sites. And uh, so far, it has been very impressive with the capabilities of this thing. Uh, myself, I moved from an area where I used to be able to have the space for a four foot by eight foot CNC table uh, to a place where I have a two foot by four foot, which you can still do some stuff, but occasionally I'm limited by that. Something like this would mean if I needed to one off a project that was very large, I could get away with it with something like this. The other sweet spot here is imagine making just a a template using this. So you make a router template, and then after that, any old router, you could use that template to cut out Mm -hmm. uh, multiple pieces. So if you do want to manufacture on a a more substantial level, you know, a cheap router after you've made a a perfect set of templates with this would do the trick. Uh, This is the Shaper Origin, guys, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to check it out. I know many of you guys are DIYers, (laughs) and I can imagine some really cool rigs, some camera options, a few other things you could probably build with this that would be really sweet and uh i absolutely as soon as i saw this i pre-ordered it so uh, (laughs) there's sixteen hundred dollars i hope that will show up someday uh take my money uh, yeah exactly i I (laughs) want it yesterday is what i want but uh really cool and the tape technology is very interesting too they actually had to develop a special type of tape for them to do this sort of uh positioning sensing uh information stuff the the tape and the the stickers themselves that they were getting from manufacturers weren't good enough to actually track like this so mm-hmm. r- really cool stuff i'm interested in that i want one uh hopefully when i get one i'll make something really cool that i can oh, uh, yeah. show you guys uh, how about a new desk i need a new uh really fancy yeah. desk you'll just start coming up with projects just to use it yeah exactly <laughs> all right moving on down the line let's talk about some firmware on the Blackmagic camera. This is the 4.0 update. Devin, you know a lot more about this than I do because I am not excited about Blackmagic cameras at all. What do you know about this update, man? Well, the for me, it's it's first off, I'm upset that it's called beta. 
Um, from what I've heard, <laughs> it's super Magic, stable. Every bit of software they ever release well, in beta. It, as, as if the products weren't already beta, that they ship with features that they promise, but they deliver on later. Um, now we've got firmware that's beta. Uh, firmware that's unsupported because that's Blackmagic's way, I guess. Uh, for the most part, though, it includes some major things that people have been asking for, and I'm just glad to see that Blackmagic's listening to the community to a point and is delivering on some of those better things. So for a lot of things, they completely changed over the UI. They made the UI a lot easier to use. Um, th- for their, uh, They allow a lot more customization in the buttons and things like that. Um, because a lot of people were asking, like, hey, it's really hard to move around in this camera and get stuff done. Uh, one of the biggest features, though, is that now you can load LUTs into the camera. So after the firmware update, you can throw a little SD card or something like that in there. Or maybe it was a compact flash. But you can load in LUTs into the camera that it can. you can choose if they go out the EVF, the SDI, the LCD screen. So when you need to ship it over to the director, he can see what, it, you know a rough idea of what the actual image will look like. And this is something we've seen on larger cameras that are more expensive, like your FS7 and things like that. And so I'm really happy to see Blackmagic people being like, hey, we need to have this SDI out, have a LUT on it for our directors and producers and things. And Blackmagic seems to have been pretty quick about turning that over. So still, you know, it's not a uh, perfect camera. And I think that there's still a few usability problems. And I'm upset that this is beta firmware. But so far, feel free to load it because no one's complained of one issue of loading this beta firmware, and it's fun to play with. What is the uh, current price on this guy? Do you know? It's like four forty five hundred. Uh, for the four point six k, I believe I thought it was under four thousand. Uh, I actually don't have the prices. Uh, but oh no, it just got sure. me thinking. Like, uh, I wonder if we'll see now that the five D Mark Four is out, and uh, a number of other cameras are starting to fall off in price terms. I wonder if Black Magic will start offering uh, the old deals and specials. <laughs> Remember about the time uh, uh, the GH Four came out, the Pocket Cinema camera was dropping down to half price yeah. or three quarters price uh, quite regularly. Well, I, I picked one of those up as soon as I saw it, and I'm surprised that they still haven't fallen back down to that price after all this time even after the new one that came out too uh the ursa 4.6k with an ef mount is five grand and then your 4k is three grand oh wow so i think most people don't consider the 4k everyone talks about the 4.5k but yeah five grand and what's the crop uh, factor on that uh i think it's just it's a super 35 sensor so it's your usual like apsc 1.6x crop so maybe the 5d is given some some cameras to run for them yeah you know what it's it's just i don't know man that 5d it's there isn't enough there considering like all the other options if you're a dedicated video shooter uh because you know it's, i kind of want for... it as a stills camera and then shoot some oh, video well, yeah. on it because i always loved the stills experience of my 5d mark 3 and you know what i might do I sold all my 5D Mark III's when they were worth about $2,200 a pop. I might keep an eye out on the used market for a 5D Mark III to drop down to, you know, $1,200 or $1,300 and buy that as a stills camera again. <laughs> you know what? The the 5D is a brilliant stills camera. Um, I, I really think that it's just they didn't want uh, to take any money away from the cinema line, which is silly because... Those are really two different markets, but again, when they you sell a camera for you know as much as a 5D is, I guess you could kind of say, yeah, they're kind of in the same market because they're roughly like the same price. Uh, I think though that it's it's 
it's just five the Canon does not want their DSLRs to really be true video cameras anymore. And when you spend that much money, you could get a camera with XLR inputs and better power yeah. options and everything else. There's a lot better options to go with. And then if you just care about performance, uh, the A7S II has really good performance and is cheaper. So it really makes it a hard buy for anyone who's only buying it for video. When I still want a low light stills camera and I kept my 6D but the 60, its maximum shutter speed is one four thousandth of a second. So mm-hmm. if you're shooting with primes and you're shooting in daylight and you want some shallow depth of field for your stills, you really push up against that pretty fast. And I end up having to use an ND filter, which isn't optimal for wide angle lenses and some of the other things. And I didn't think that would be that big of an issue until I started hitting it all the time and overexposing <laughs> stills. Then I'm like, man, I don't know. I, sh- I miss my 5D Mark III as my stills camera. So <laughs> they may may still get me back as just a stills shooter. I don't need stills yeah. that often, but uh, it's it's something I enjoy doing uh, besides filmmaking. I, I don't know. I might... I might just get two A7S Mark IIs instead of the 1DC. <laughs> it depends on how fast I can find a 1DC on sale. Now, I mentioned a long time ago that I put about $600 down on a drone. And this was the the drone, the Lily, that you could throw in the air. It would follow you around, uh, do all these cool mm-hmm. things. That has yet to materialize. It's been more than a year since I gave them my $600 that I'll probably never see again. Now, we're already starting to see cameras, or excuse me, drones, that look very similar to the Lily, that mm-hmm. do very similar things. Devin, tell me about Power Egg, this weird <laughs> freaking egg copter, quadcopter thingamajigger. Uh, for the most part, um, it's, it, it's interesting because, uh, the price comes in with a lot of these other drones around 1300. The most prominent feature though is the fact that it looks like an egg. Um, what, <laughs> what I, what I put in the show notes is that like, this is, um, I don't know, something built around the, the Casey Neistat style. And if you're not familiar with that, there's a YouTuber called Casey Neistat who's notorious for riding a boosted board, that's an electric skateboard, with the controller in one hand and a DJI Phantom controller in the other hand while he flies his quadcopter behind him, following him through the streets of New York while he rides his boosted board. And um, here, not only do they give you a full-size controller, but they also give you a mini controller that you can use with one hand, uh, which makes me think like it's designed for people like that. Now, all, the, all I've seen in these videos is it take off for two feet and then land again. Uh, but they're they're saying the usual kind of things that we see in these drones. Nothing new with like, hey, it's a 4K camera. I think it's also a 360 camera if they if I've got that right. Uh, supposed to have like 23, 28 minutes of battery life. All the usual caveats. But here, it's uh, it's its shape that allows it to pack up super portable. Uh, as well as, you know, having legs for landing and takeoff and everything else. They've really, like, kind of rethought out how to design a quadcopter to make it super portable, and I like that, as well as they've given it uh, the chips it needs, the computer processing, in order to navigate indoors. So it'll actually use its cameras to figure out where it is in in the in a room where it can't get a GPS signal in order to maintain altitude and uh, uh, position. So it's it's one of those things that you just you stare at and you're like, what? What is that really? Uh, and I thought I thought it was super fascinating. I'd like to see it out in the wild. See how it does look like a very a bit smaller of a frame. I'm not sure I trust those arms uh, with being able to handle wind and whatnot. But I could be wrong. So I'd really like to see this thing in the wild because it it just it, it looks wild. Um, it, it's got a gimbaled camera on the bottom. 
Uh, you don't have to worry about getting legs in the shot. Like, it's very well thought out, and it's got sonar so that it knows when it's getting close to the ground and everything like that. They've got a backpack, of course. So I want to try it out. I really just want to play with it and see uh, how easy it is to control and um, how well it works. But, yeah, if you want to, you can pre-order now for $1,300. I usually advise against pre-ordering because from, <laughs> I don't know, I've never heard of the company Power Vision. And so that's what you run into with some of these things and Kickstarters and whatnots is, uh, like in DJ's case, a product that never shows up or a product that's half-baked. So... There was actually a Kickstarter uh, from a company that I'm very, very familiar with. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, Pro 35. Does that sound right, Devin? Am I saying that correctly? Pro 35. Pro 35. uh, Jag 35? Jag 35. Thank you. Uh, They've got a a little stand that they're Kickstarting instead of uh, selling. And it's very similar to those Gorilla Pods. In yeah. that it like squeezes around and wraps around and stuff, and I'll throw that link in the show notes. Uh, you know, that one you know actually what's does look pretty sexy. That that, that started uh, geniusly enough. That started. I'm, I, a part of me thinks it's a whole marketing thing behind it. Um, I, I don't. I don't know the Jack Thirty Five guys personally, but uh, they actually uh, the 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 guy on the electric board that shoots YouTube videos. He actually films himself with a giant gorilla pod with a six D on top of it, or five D, seven D, something like that, on top of it, and uses it to hold it out in front of him. But gorilla pods aren't really—I don't know—they aren't really built for a whole lot of weight. And with the if you use them every day, they get kind of worn out and loose. So he actually developed that same thing uh, from the Kickstarter that I hope DJ's pulling up right now, so you can see an image of it. <laughs> Trying which to is find like, it, desperately which, searching. <laughs> which is like a gorilla pod on steroids. It's uh, like full metal frame and everything else. It looks super tough. It looks super rugged. And I actually sent that to uh, Casey Neistat, which he opened on camera and was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And then instantly he got a bazillion requests from everybody who's like, I want that gorilla pod. Like, I want that flexible tripod. That looks amazing. All right, here so it is now, right here. Okay, so guys. So now he ran the Kickstarter and unfortunately was unsuccessful because while everyone clamored for it, I don't know if everyone wanted to pay for it. Uh, but I think he might still release the product. Uh, it looks super rugged. I wanted one, too. I think I joined this Kickstarter, too, if I remember right. It was a while back, but um, comes in different sizes. It's it's really cool, and knowing the Jack 35 guys, they would deliver on it. So, Yeah, that's unfortunate, actually. I, I didn't realize it wasn't funded yet. Uh, I saw this, and these guys are, are very legit. Uh, they machine a lot of different rigs and so on. And uh, this design is pretty cool. Prices were right, $149. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe we'll see this on an Indiegogo or something like that. It looks like it reached 40000 instead of 60000 uh, th- yeah. I think they could sell a lot of these. And you're absolutely right. I've, I'm using a Gorillapod right now to support the camera that's uh, doing this podcast. And uh, I don't it's trust flaky. it. Yeah, it's, it, I trust <laughs> it for, like, leaning up against the wall and, like, leaving it in position. Mm-hmm. But I don't trust it for wrapping a three or $4,000 camera around a, a pole or something like that to yeah. hang it. Uh, it's more – I even have the really expensive Gorillapod, the, the one that's supposed to support up to, like, 15 or 20 pounds. And mm-hmm. it's still still a bit shifty. Uh, I mean, I, I should have plugged in my second camera so I could show you guys, but my office <laughs> is such a mess right now that I didn't want to let that slide. Now, moving on, we've got a couple more things to cover here. One of them is actually pretty sweet, and we're going really fast, so this might actually be a short show, guys, but one of the things that's out there right now that we kind of, I think, didn't we see this at NAB, the Eldecron Wing, which is basically this 
very mm-hmm. sexy mini slider arm type of thing and it, it basically slides across allowing your camera to make small moves this is electrically controlled is that correct Evan? or is no it, that is not correct that is not correct it's spring it is controlled all mechanical it's all mechanical how come yes. th- it moves in the videos if does it legitimately watch, move is, is that <laughs> did i get tricked when i watch these videos it's, it's a 3d mock-up of the product in motion and if you check on the second or third shot of the advertising video it says in the bottom right corner uh product is not motorized oh well that's bullshit crap then i am done (laughs) i was excited about this and now i'm way less excited about this so what this is basically just a freaking stretchy arm with uh, some tension in it that you can slide back and forth how do you keep it straight uh well the the, it it keeps straight because it has a belt driven system so just by using a couple of gears and a few belts, when you turn one, they all turn the appropriate amount so that uh. it maintains its uh, position. So that, and then it does actually have adjustable tension on it too. Um, but yeah, the product is not motorized, which I know they, they definitely make it look like it's motorized. They don't show people using the product. When I saw this uh, video, I, I didn't even read into it. I just assumed it was motorized. And I was like, this is amazing. I would love to have a little motorized uh, arm like mm-hmm. this. Now that you tell me no. this, it's I'm way, way less excited <laughs> about this thing. I've crushed your dreams. It, um, how would you even know? Like this, I'm, I'm showing the video for those of you guys watching the, the video on YouTube. And it's, yeah, uh, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know from that. You just watch that and you're like, that is a super sweet deal like because they they never show somebody using it they're just showing like the 3d mock-ups of it in action which are sexy shots but you know they should be showing people using it but in any case um eldercron is very well known for uh their smaller products which there's i i I hear opinions on both sides about the good and the bad of their products but uh, in this case, it seems like another one of these products that's like if you're a guy who shoots on a small camera and you don't rig anything to it, you just, I don't know, shoot with just the bare camera, uh, their products are pretty good for that. In terms of like the slider, super small, I don't expect it to hold a lot of weight. I don't know if they report the weight that it does, but uh, they, mention they keep showing it with an A7S. and A6300s and so on, so I'm guessing yeah. not a huge amount of weight, maybe a pound no, or two. No, so I, you wouldn't be putting a 5D on this guy. It probably wouldn't be safe. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's it's one of those that's, like, really cool, of course, because we know Eldercron, it's, it's going to be a little bit more pricey than a lot of the other options out there. Uh, most people would be like a 16 inch slider for 250 bucks seems like a bit much, even if it does have adjustable tension. Uh, but in this case I go, well, it's super small. If you're one of those guys that really, I don't know, you shoot like panorama nature shot, stuff like that. You have to backpack through places, something this small may be perfect for you because all you care about is getting your one camera and your one lens to move. In my case with audio adapters or ND filters and all kinds of stuff, Uh, I tend to look for something a bit more substantial for rigging. Uh, But, you know, they finally came out with it. I think they announced it at NAB in 2014, and now it's finally out. So for you people who have been waiting for this, um, some people may say too little too late. But uh, (laughs) for for people that were waiting for this, it's out now for 250. You can order it now. And I don't know. I wouldn't be picking one up because um, I don't travel that light yet. I have a, so. a love-hate relationship with El- Eldecron. They they do make some really cool stuff. But some of the stuff, you see it and you're like, yes, this would be extremely practical. This is going to be great, amazing. And you get it and it does one thing sort of well. And then the rest of the things that you thought you could use it for 
aren't mm-hmm. really that great. Uh, that one example I can think of right off the top of my head is that, remember that little square that they had that allowed you to flip the camera to point straight down? And uh, oh, it, it yeah, was sort yeah. of like an accordion type of deal that you put yeah. underneath your camera to, onto your tripod stand. Great concept, uh, but it didn't have enough tension to hold anything over mm-hmm. a very light camera. And so it would end up drifting on you or moving about. And there was no way to really lock it in place. And it sold for, I want to say, 250 or $300. And then maybe six months later, the entire market was flooded with $40 versions of it from China. Uh, I, yeah. I, I would guess this is going to end up in the same category. I, I don't want to say this one's bad, but, you know, you start seeing something like it looks like it's motorized. And then we we go and <laughs> we actually look here and we see, oh, wait, no, they've got some, uh, you know, rubber bands stretched across with gears. And then they've got a tensioning mm-hmm. rod. I don't know. It's the same thing with remember that uh, tripod we saw at NEB. It's a really great concept. It, it, they created this tripod that folds out and folds up and gives you all these great angles and ways to work. Oh, but yeah, yeah. With on the, the floor, wheels, yeah, with the little, little wheels, and it, it was like a single piece yeah. with like several folding joints. Uh, that thing was really cool too, but then you start thinking about it, and you're like, man, this is pretty heavy, and then you're trying to use it, and they're like, no, no, you got to use it this way. No, you got to use it this way, and it's not quite doing the things that you thought it should do. And I, I've talked to a number of people that have the same feeling about Eldercron. They, they think, well, this is a really awesome engineering concept that they've come up with, way different than everybody else. But then it doesn't quite meet the needs that you think it's going to fulfill in your setup or what have you. And that's not for everything. They've got some really great stuff. Their sliders, uh, especially their electronic controlled sliders, they're awesome. They do a great job. Uh, it's just yes. some of the like little machined bits and pieces that they make I don't. Yeah. I don't want to hound them or tell them it's bad, but uh, same thing. They were, uh, at NEB, they gave away those little uh, selfie stick things that is a necklace right. that magneted your phone. Well, I didn't think about it. I threw the puck that they gave me into the, my phone case and then forgot about it. And I've been having horrible cell phone reception for like four months. And it, it <laughs> turns out that the uh, little plate that they gave me was like sure. blocking my my antenna in my phone yeah, and causing my metal. exactly yeah. causing my 4g to go out and uh, you know at first i was like oh this is a great idea look at this this is really cool and then you know you, you use it and you're like well there's the unforeseen consequences of a another elder crown device dang it man you guys are making cool looking stuff and i always think i need it I yeah it's it's one of those that there's there's like good design uh, beautiful design some of the engineering that isn't quite up to par with it what you're talking about is a stand plus which is an interesting solution because it is a tripod that for the first uh, unlike most tripods it can easily change height from like you know a foot off the ground to like i forget four and a half feet or something like that five feet it's not a super tall tripod but it is like easily adjustable um but there's no locking knobs or anything like that in order to keep it easy to use and then, too, it just has caster wheels. They expect you to use this indoors on flat ground and everything else. And for that use case of, like, hey, I'm in my, you know, I don't know, apartment making YouTube videos or something like that or making my own cooking show, uh, maybe that works for some people. Uh, but as we can see, like, it's got just a camera on it. It doesn't handle weight. It's not built for rigging. Um, and that's just because of the nature of it. They didn't put any tightening knobs or anything like that. So it's friction-based movement. It can only hold so much weight. And unfortunately, a system like that, it's usually not a lot of weight, um, it, uh, t- total height of 64 inches. So it, it's one of those that it's like, 
that's pretty cool. And I think everyone looking at it would be like, oh, well, you know, I could see people who would use that, you know, uh, maybe not necessarily video guys going out in the wild on shoots and stuff like that. But hey, if you're like, you know, in the studio, this is just a B camera or, hey, you're shooting your own videos at home and you just want to roll a camera around on your hardwood floor. But then you see the price is eight hundred dollars and you're like, forget it. Like <laughs> I'll hassle. I'll hassle with an ordinary tripod if it saves me seven hundred dollars. So that was it. it, it Remember the old Eldercron rig, the very first one that they came out with before they... The shoulder they, one? Yeah, before they became Eldercron and they still had like handy video tools or something like that was their original name. Yeah. It, it yeah. was this really great concept, a, a square rig that was C-shaped open in the middle. Your camera mm-hmm. slid in and then it had this expansion thing that went around your neck and provided counterbalance and stuff. And uh, yeah. those always looked so awesome in concept. And then I talked to people who had them, and they're like, "Yeah, it was okay, I guess." You know, like they, they weren't super excited about it. But the design and all the the touches, the like monitor holder and uh, the EVF mm-hmm. and all the other bits and pieces that they built into it were phenomenal ideas. It's just, uh, I, I don't know, uh, no one that I talked to that ever owned one uh, was. They were just kind of like, eh, "Yeah, it was okay. I didn't mind that." You know, but it, it was like a three thousand dollar rig, so hopefully you would love it for that price. You know. Right, and I, I think that's the main uh, – my main caveat with it is that they, they build it around a small camera use. They build it just for kind of these isolated situations, uh, but then the pricing doesn't necessarily match that. You're asking for a lot of money uh, for someone who's like, oh, well, this would be pretty cool and make things easier. But if a person's running around with like kind of just a camera – like they show in their videos and stuff like that, then I'm like, they're not going to drop that much money on rigging equipment if all they own is a camera and a small lens. It just it doesn't seem to match up. I'm sure they make sales. I'm sure there's people who love it, but I think you're right. They, they really engineer it for small, lightweight situations. And then people like us who are like, well, sometimes I need more than that. It, it doesn't service that at all. So... Uh, <laughs> Again, I, I, I haven't I met a person these yet things out of Eldercron's site that are just like, "What is this? This yeah. looks really cool." And then I'm like, "Wait a minute! All that weight of a monitor on your hot shoe? Uh, yeah. Maybe not. Maybe, yeah." <laughs> They're like, "Look, and you can live stream with it too." Yeah. Okay, so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's uh, you know, I we we don't need to rag on them anymore. Uh, Great they, design. They do, Great they do, Yeah, they design some really good stuff. I feel like. Maybe they need to communicate with their customer base a little bit more and figure out exactly how to engineer it for them. But they do have some really ingenious designs that are really inspiring. Oh, and uh, yeah, Eldercron's still a great company, guys. They don't sponsor me or anything. I, I like their stuff. I, I constantly jones over new things they create. It's just I, I've mm-hmm. never found the one Eldercron product that like was the silver bullet for everything. So I, I think yep. that's where I was going with that. But let me see. We got one more thing in the show notes here before we get out of here. Devin, we've really powered through this pretty fast. Yeah, uh, we did. The Sony HXR NX5R, another lovely Exciting. name by Sony, something that's really easy to pronounce, pick out, and distinguish between products. What yeah. the hell, Sony? God, <laughs> can't you just give it a name like Fred or Ted or Sarah or something oh, like that? Because this is ridiculous. Like, uh, all these numbers and letters, uh, it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, first of all, Devin, this is basically just an all-in-one camera with live streaming capabilities and a controller. What do, what do we need this for? One-man so streaming it, band? Yeah, so what, this makes things kind of interesting because I feel like uh, this is a good opportunity for me to talk about where I think mobile broadcasting and uh, multi-camera production is going. 
because here Sony is trying to say, hey, um, you you can they're building them so you can set up these cameras. And with their controller, like the camera screen itself will have a built-in tally light showing uh, when the camera's ready to cut, when the camera's live, and things like that. Uh, And for a small production crew with just – it's a four-channel mixer, so you only got four inputs. uh, It provides a lot of capabilities for people to grab all the Sony gear, go on production, and do a live shoot. As well, this camera has, you know, a built-in light in the front, which I'm sure looks awful. And it's got um, that Sony shoe for using the wireless audio system and everything else without batteries. So it's got a lot of cool features, as well as being able to, from the camera or the switcher itself, pump out pump out to Ustream and other uh, situations, possibly Snapchat and other things like that in the future. So it's really intriguing, especially, too, with the switcher being able to communicate with the cameras, where when the switcher hits record, you can synchronize all the cameras to do ISO recordings of their own feed for backup and uh, re-editing purposes and whatnot. What I think this is, though, is that I think this is a lot of energy in the wrong direction because I don't see live production on this scale going here anymore you're always going to have your big productions like think about your football games and think about um the dnc and the rnc and stuff like that where you're going to have tons of camera guys with big studio cameras and everything else doing their jobs uh what this is marketed at is your super small live production this is like three or four guys going out to produce but the thing is i see that going away uh because when i was at the rnc All the smaller studios, um, not necessarily like Bloomberg, but I'm talking about like the smaller stuff, a lot of internet content. um, I think like the New York Journal, I think I saw this with, they just use several PTZ cameras. They'll have three or four PZT cameras, and then they have one person sitting at a video switcher that can control, focus, zoom, pan and tilt all the cameras. So they set up all the shots, and they switch all the shots. And one guy runs the whole operation for a three or four camera shoot. And I really see that being the future of cheap multi-camera production. Uh, I mean, there'd still be situations where you'd have multiple camera operators, but I'm saying for the majority of like, hey, we're going to go cover this live event or something like that. Oh, the this corporation wants us to do a multi-cam shoot for their live seminar or something like that. I could see all of that being run by one dude now. And with the way that like the margins keep getting cut down more and more on live video production in that demographic – uh, that's where I see companies will have to move where just one guy comes out and does a live multi-camera video production by himself. And then he's going to use PTZ cameras that he can control where this is kind of, I feel like these cameras are built for like a dying market where either you're going to go all the way with all the money and switching and people and power, or you're going to go in the reverse and you're going to get the cheapest multi-cam production you can get. And the now cheapest let's, one is going to be back up for a second, day. Devin. Uh, not yeah. everybody has worked in uh, uh, a TV studio before. You say PTZ. You, I'm, can you yes. say the full words there? Sure. The pan, pan, tilt, tilt zoom. and zoom? Yeah, pan, tilt, zooms. They tend to be like, they look like little, I guess you call them webcams. They uh, look like this, see- guys. Uh, you can hang them off of shelves, put them on uh, different plates, mount them to stuff. And they're kind of hokey. Uh, image quality it's not amazing on a lot of these guys, but uh, they're easy to control and easy to run. Uh, well, and that's and and that's like a consumer level. Uh, but what we saw when we went to NAB was like Panasonic was big on this. They had huge PTZ cameras that were built for broadcast purposes and uh, several in the range and higher qualities and everything else. Uh, like for example, when you watch 
uh, baseball, um, which I'm not a huge sports fan, but uh, when you see the shot that's like behind the catcher, well, you don't have a cameraman that's like sitting in between the stands and on the field. They have little PTZ cameras behind home plate. And ESPN, Fox, and everyone, that's one of the cameras they cut to. Still, for their big field cams and everything else, they got those giant box lenses and those big zooms and everything else. But uh, you'll notice more and more productions, in order to increase the number of cameras and the production quality while decreasing the cost, are using PTZ cameras where they have one operator that operates the PTZ cameras um, to turn, tilt them, zoom them, and do all that kind of stuff with the video switcher and whatnot. So I really see small live production going in that direction of PTZ. I mean, we've already seen a live stream kind of doing it in a way where their uh, live cam 4K camera would crop in at 1080p to get different shots and kind of act like a PTZ. So um, What's it's the interesting. Price on this guy, the Sony, what have you, what have you? number XHRNX5R. Yes. I'm, I'm looking at this. Okay, $3,600. That yeah. does not include the switcher. It looks like no. Uh, so probably about fifty five hundred for an internet content creator who's going to live stream events and so on. That does seem a little bit on the on the high price side. Yeah. Once you cross a certain threshold, um, those uh, pan tilt zoom cameras you're talking about, you could buy a decent set of those for about two thousand dollars a pop. Uh, especially the ones that we were seeing used at a a lot of these like live coverage events and so on. So you could have two or three of those on a stand, uh, run them back to a switcher for about the same price. You still have to, well, I mean with this, you'd still need broad, you know, some way to broadcast it because you know, you'd have to have Wi-Fi connection or ethernet or something of that nature to run it through. So I put you in the same boat, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you would still need, you know, some kind of switching interface to switch with these cameras. Um, I think just in general, I'm trying to say that for a lot of smaller productions, uh, PTZ is the way everyone is going because it's cheaper and it takes up a lot less room. I mean, like at the RNC in the uh, the garage, they turned into an office, which was weird. They like boarded up all the sides and pumped air conditioning in there and added carpet and stuff. Yeah, it was wild. Um and two, because everything's on a slope, you always feel like you're drunk because you're like slightly off because you're on a slope. But uh, a lot of those booths would literally be maybe like 12 to 13 feet across and like maybe five or six feet deep. And they would, because they're using PTZ cameras that are literally the size of your head, uh, they would just set up four or five PTZs on light stands. And they'd still have enough room to have two people sit there with a backdrop and do a multi-camera shoot with that. Um, so really... A really interesting way of like trying to maximize uh, your space when you have, uh, you know, um, not a whole lot of room for tripods and camera operators and everything else. So it's um, but you're right. Like the price of PTZs are going to start dropping. I just see these cameras more or less going away. They keep trying to pump like multi-camera. Hey, we can make live production easier with our switcher and our cameras and everything else. And I see a lot of people going like. I'm just going to grab some PTZs with a 20x optical zoom and call it a day because that's way easier for me to operate. Um, And I can put them anywhere. I think that's one of the coolest parts is that because they're so small and so light uh, because they aren't built for human ergonomics or what have you. uh, I saw a lot of people put them on light stands. They just put up a light stand, put a sandbag on it, and they're done. And it takes up a lot less room than a tripod and a head and everything else. So 
Uh, really interesting to see where that's going to go in the next couple of years. Uh, I here, I think Sony, it's like too little too late. I'm like, this stuff should have come out a few years ago. If you wanted to get into the market, I still see this being a great, uh, VJ camera or, a you know, a video producer runs out and gets his own news, uh, because it has the built in light, the compatibility, of course, with the Sony wireless and everything else. It'd be a great field camera to run out and shoot stuff with. And maybe occasionally live stream if you want to. But this whole setup of like, hey, get our switcher and our cameras and they all work really well together and buy the whole package. I see that going away because it's like, man, there's cheaper options that are way easier to use. And no one's going to pay me that much to put together a production. Well, this market's kind of crowded anyway with these all in one cameras. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's so many people making this type of camera JVC, now. JVC, Panasonic. Yeah, Panasonic. And they're really good cameras. And almost all of them now are including some sort of. Uh, Wi-Fi stream or IP portal that you can stream mm-hmm. from, and uh, do you even need the switcher at that point? Because really, no. something like this would be like, oh, I can monitor this here, and I can also send a live stream out, and then I have it for edit in in I, a later format. You're you're totally right. I see. I really see that uh, as weird as it sounds, because live stream this thing's been around for so long, and live stream technology's been around for so long. Uh, but the live stream services I really see as being the future of video production, but no one's taken advantage of it. And I don't know because I haven't used them personally. Maybe there's, you know, there's problems with their software or something like that. Or, or more like trying to, to get use. data uh, sources. Like I've seen people with the crazy backpack that has yeah. four LTE uh, wireless sims hooked up to like a router and right. they're bonding them all together. And then they're using that to live stream and their live stream is still coming out like little iffy if not completely iffy well, and and you'd 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 be surprised cuz actually uh what you're talking about is uh either a TVU or a LiveU backpack which are yeah. two companies uh Desgero is also another company too a lot of your NBC ABC guys uh they'll actually use Desgeros uh it's usually your access TV or your smaller networks that use something like UTV uh but they'll actually do broadcast quality now the ones you're talking about on the consumer and the internet people they usually maybe have 3 or 4 bonded uh when it comes to something like NBC using this in place of a satellite truck they'll usually have 8 to 12 bonded 4G uh. modems so they're able to actually pump out something much closer to broadcast. So it's not perfect, and there's a little bit more delay. You're talking about four or five seconds. Uh, but they'll use that in order to maintain that quality, which costs a lot of money. But uh, for them, it's still cheaper than calling up a satellite truck and renting satellite time. So it's really starting to take over for uh, quick shoots and things where they need to be mobile or things where they can't get a satellite truck if they're in the middle of a hurricane or something like that. So. Uh, really interesting technology there, but like I was getting back to the other point of switching, and you're talking about these cameras go to the cloud, why do I need a switcher? I think you're right. I think in the future, the switcher will be in the cloud, and all the sources will just come to the switcher and the switching software in the cloud, and then you're switching it remotely. Um, and then it goes to whatever production it is because it allows you to use any device to switch it, monitor it. You can use any device as an input, whether it's, you know, even a cell phone camera. If you've got, you know, a reporter down in the mess of it and they put up their cell phone camera and say stream, that can go into your switcher now. So when you combine all that, it makes for a really exciting opportunity uh, to do a lot of coverage and stuff like that on the fly. I do think for these smaller productions, uh, it's not just the cameras that'll change, but I think physical video switchers will start to go away too because it just makes sense. Uh, well, you could have like three or four RTSP sources and then just be like, okay, this one, this one, this one, this one, and you could have them like buffering somehow, right? I mean, wouldn't that yeah. be very easy to do? Uh, and especially well, it, if you have some like back end cloud processing that's taking care of, you know, video storage and recording from all four or five sources. 
And that's and that's what live stream has been doing for a long time, though. Like I've said, I've never seen anyone use them in the wild yet. Uh, but live stream for the past maybe four years has allowed you to use multiple computers as video inputs and then be able to switch between them and add graphics and everything else and really have full control as a cloud switching solution. I don't know if it's because older industry guys just are like, I need my physical switcher or maybe, you know, their product doesn't work as well right now as it needs to. But I, I really see where Sony should be going is providing solutions like that. So, hey, if you're doing the local football game or something like that for the local high school, you can set up three cameras that all go into the cloud and then you just switch it in the cloud. The switcher could be anywhere. He he could be in the school. He could be in his basement. Doesn't matter. And he could switch that and run the production. So it's kind of things like that that I see things uh, really where this budget, I guess you could call it for lack of a term, budget broadcasting is going towards because that'll probably be way cheaper. Uh, definitely in hardware costs, it would probably just all end up being rental costs in terms of uh, monthly software like we have with Adobe and other things like that. All right, last thing before we get out of here, and I just wanted to put this out there for you uh, folks that are editing quite a bit and wanting the new latest and greatest graphics card. Uh, the GTX 1080 has been very hard to come by at its $699 retail price. Uh, people people have been selling it for as high as seven or eight hundred dollars for the yeah which is ridiculous uh so if you're in the market for a new gpu and you don't need to go quite up to the mark of a 1080p uh a 1080p a gtx 1080 well, why they named it that makes me angry every time uh, but <laughs> you can get a titan x guys for fairly affordable price here um, i've seen these as low as well, of course, I scroll through and I see some 1200s, but $600 to $500. I actually just picked up a second Titan X for my system because I had one already uh, for <laughs> a price of 450 on Craigslist. So uh, keep an eye out for those. A great graphics card. It's only about 5 to 8% slower than the uh, a GTX 1080. And if you want to do just a small amount of overclocking here, I can actually show you guys this the uh uh maybe i can't yeah here we go check uh check this out it's really simple to install the msi afterburner uh software and you can crank up your gtx or your excuse me titan x up to about the exact same speed as a gtx 1080 so it's a matter of sliding a few things and cranking the fan up just a little bit to keep the temperature down although mine is at 67 right now so i might want to crank this fan up just a little bit to cool her off because holy crap that's a little hot there we go really yeah that's hot for you man my i I normally run around 40 to 45 i keep it cooler I, I, I average 60 to 80. Oh, well, okay then. Uh, let me uh, just crank the fan <laughs> speed back down to 55. But, uh, well, no, I, the, I have a, a 680, I think, and the 680s were the older architecture that ran really hot. So it's expected that they get up to 80 when you use them. Getting up to 90s when they thermal throttle. That's, uh, that's how much uh, – that's how they know it's a hot card is when they don't throttle you until you hit 90 Celsius. Well, it doesn't take much. You crank the fan up, and this is already mm-hmm. coming back down. Mine generally uh, overclocked, and I've been doing that for quite some time, uh, runs somewhere in the range of about 45 to 50 C, but I turned the fan to auto so that it would uh, not run loudly while I was doing the show. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a great card. Uh, it's very affordable right now, especially with the new Titan uh, Pascal out, which mm-hmm. that's con- it's confusing, too, because you have a Titan Black, you have the Titan X, you have the Titan Pascal. It, you yeah. know, 
what? Thanks. Thanks, video. But you're right. People people will be dropping those tight nexus for 1080s, so keep an eye out. There's probably some good deals that are going to start happening in the next few months. Yeah, and it's a great card. You're you're 95% of the way to a 1080 if you uh, don't want to wait, and you can get it for a couple hundred dollars less. So well, and and I think for editing too, isn't probably just going to be identical performance considering the CUDA cores and everything else in the RAM. It's going to pretty much be the same situation. You won't notice a difference in terms of editing. Yeah. So once you get into the the G- GTX 1080 and the GT or in the Titan X, uh, as far as rendering is concerned, you kind of peak with those two cards on the GPU side, and then it starts making more of a difference on the number of cores on your CPU to get the extra little bit. So if you look at a lot of the performance curves for a, a Titan X versus a uh, GTX 1080, you'll see that the rendering times with the identical i7 CPU will get you within a second of each other or less than a second of each other for a long render. Uh, But then when you go to one of the higher core count units uh, on the 2011 series, you'll get, uh, you know, a significant Mm -hmm. gain there of like five to 10 seconds per minute of render or more. Uh, And so at, at some point, Adobe isn't utilizing the GPU as much as they are utilizing the CPU. There's also some issues I've been running into, and I just upgraded from uh, 15.3 Premiere Pro to 15.4, and a bunch of my timelines went wonky on me. And it's because the GPU rendering implementation changed. And way different. So because of that, uh, some of my timelines would just uh, lean heavily on my CPU and my RAM and would ramp up to 95% RAM usage. And I had to spend a half a day with Adobe trying to figure out how to fix it. And it turns out I have to import the sequences from old timelines into a new Mm. timeline and then, you know, uh, turn off CUDA and then turn CUDA back on again and then I'm good to go. But... I don't know. At some point, they need to focus a little bit better on that because it's it's, pissing me off. It's a good point. Um, Well, for me, file compatibility across versions upgrading has always been a pain. Um, I always try to avoid it Uh, because there's always one problem or another, whether it's a random audio glitch or something else. Uh, But I think it does go to show them changing their implementation is because they keep trying to take more and more advantage of the GPU. So if you're somebody who hasn't considered necessarily what GPU you have in order to edit, uh, it's something to definitely consider now because a lot of your plugins too, I'm a big fan of uh, Video Copilot's Element 3D. That uses a lot of GPU resources. Um, as well as like things like Film Convert, if you like to uh, use that for your LUTs and your gain, uh, grain, uh, that uses GPU as well. So it's not just Premiere uh, and Resolve and uh, Final Cut X and other things that are using GPUs. It's also the plugins that are made for them that have started using GPUs too. So well, there's some, expect that to go up. Yeah, there's some really excellent uh, transcoding programs too that really rely heavily on GPU uh, based mm-hmm. rendering it's escaping me right now but you know if, if for some reason you're dealing with i don't know say motion jpeg as a codec <laughs> and you want it to be in a uh, you know a more long-term viable solution uh mm-hmm. one of those transcoding programs can just whip through transcoding a crap load of media into something that's a lot more manageable pretty fast and if you have and, a great gpu it'll and that's do it. that's one thing i've been upset about with premiere is the fact that uh, maybe three or four years ago, this is getting really nerdy. Three or four years ago, Premiere uh, or Intel created a plugin or not a plugin. You're talking about Quicksilver? 
Yeah, or no, no, not Quicksilver. This is QuickSync. Oh, QuickSync. Uh, Intel yes, thank you. developed a QuickSync beta thing for Premiere, being like, "Look, you can use Premiere to use QuickSync Intel to make your H.264 files." And Intel's QuickSync, on average, I found is probably sixty to seventy percent uh, faster, lower time than using CUDA. Which, of course, CUDA is like one-fourth, one-fifth of the time it would take to normally do it through software. Um, so it's always been way faster. And I, was it a year ago, people started being like, look at how much faster Final Cut X is than Premiere. And one of the reasons for that, that it had faster timeline rendering, faster uh, export, and everything else, was because Final Cut X was using Intel QuickSync, because all the Macs are Intel-based. Um, and I've been upset because I'm like, Intel even made... A working prototype for Adobe back in like I want to say 2013 or Adobe 2014 uh, that I tried out and it worked and yet Adobe hasn't implemented anything from Intel QuickSync which I'm like <laughs> I understand you're really into this CUDA thing you're really into these AMD cards you're making stuff work uh, but at the same time I'm like you could also be leveraging the power of an Intel QuickSync for people who have i7s and everything else that have this Intel QuickSync technology so uh, I don't I, I personally I don't think it'll ever come because I don't think they've shown any interest in working in that direction. Uh, but in any case, it's it's a note that, hey, get a big graphics card because they're becoming more and more important for editing. And I could see, a, you know, where maybe now the in the next few years, the processor will come down in importance and the GPU will start to come up uh, because of the way that GPUs are just very fantastic and very fast at doing these little specific things. Like mining Bitcoin. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a blast from the past, right? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and you got me thinking about transcoding again. Uh, yeah. Working with uh, Motion JPEG, one of the things that was the groan when I realized the data rate. I mean, yes, mm -hmm. awesome, great. You're getting uh, 500 megabits per second, but holy crap, is that just useless, wasted space because the compression on that is, is, is efficient. Not, it isn't efficient yeah. at all. Yeah, you, and you start thinking about that, and you start thinking about the 100 megabit codec that we're getting out of some of these other cameras, and you're in the ballpark, minus the color space. Uh, you could easily transcode that footage down to a fifth the size or less, and long-term yeah. storage that's probably Makes a lot very sense. feasible especially when you're talking uh you know four gig a minute or more uh that's that just gets ridiculous it's like the old days it, of TV well, it's, tape. it's like shooting on a black magic you shoot on a 4.6k ursa mini and yeah that's about the data rates it gets for ProRes, which is uh, you you could argue a much more modern better kodak yeah. for doing your recording or dnx hd so I get it. The motion JPEG thing is old. I think it'll still look brilliant, and I think it'll still look really good, and it won't be that difficult to use other than the fact that your I.O. is going to be saturated uh, with all that data. Have to edit uh, but, off a freaking SD, SSD instead of a, yeah. a regular spinning drive. Yeah, you, that is one where it's like, yeah, you need an SSD. You cannot edit this on uh, normal mechanical drives. Hell, you need to like raid some SSDs or get some of those PCIe SSDs that go like two thousand megabits per second or something i mean this is get deep in the weeds but uh this next is. <laughs> next to my desk here i have a four bay drobo that's usb 3.0 and uh spinning mm -hmm. drives it's my my backup and i backed up a, a feature that i was working on and then somebody asked me to bring it up and do some edits for a director's cut so i i brought it up and i was running off the drobo and they're they're live streaming with me to watch me do the tweaks that they want and it's mm -hmm. freezing all the time and going slow and i was trying to figure out what the hell's going on it's it's only a, like an 800 gig uh, f 
a set of files to work off of, but the spinning drives weren't keeping up with the number of streams that needed to happen simultaneously mm-hmm. over USB. So I ended up having to copy the entire project over to my one terabyte SSD to do my editing and changes and then copy it back over to the Drobo for backup again, which is man i don't know i don't think i want to edit off of uh, spinning drives anymore and those were no those were not like out of control file sizes they were 50 megabit 1080p files so it's it's just for me for me personally uh my setup is um i've got four mechanical uh western digital blacks that uh i have set up into a raid zero uh so i can average usually about 300 uh, megabytes a second off of that raid and that's really just for like big projects big storage stuff like that and i don't consider that a backup because it is a raid zero so that actually backs up to just an ordinary external drive every few hours and then what i really edit off of is two because it was cheaper back then two 512 uh gigabyte ssds that are in a raid zero which that that's the real project drive and that always gets backed up like every 10 minutes to an external drive as well because that could fail at any time as soon as you add more drives to your raid like that especially in a zero it's more likely something's going to fail so i'm very big on backups so i actually kind of use a combination of that where i have like stock footage and everything else on my mechanical raid and then i have an ssd raid that even on my old lonely um uh 1155 motherboard uh, I can go ahead and get, you know, 700 maybe megabytes per second, something like that. So it, it's okay for me. It's it's fast enough. I'm not really working with 4K yet, so. Uh, just to, so you guys see the screen real quick here, main, main drive is a one terabyte SSD drive. My backup editing drive is another one terabyte SSD drive. Uh, a three terabyte just junk drive that's, you know, downloads and whatever. Uh, my speedy edit is another 400 or a 500 ter- or 500 gig ssd drive and then uh 14 or 15 terabyte uh drobo backup unit and another rated four terabyte uh backup unit here so a backup on disk and then a backup externally it's it's a little out of control uh might be might be overkill a little bit <laughs> it but it's a mean, little out of control as, as you can see though i mean most of these are pretty well filled up and continue to be filled i mean i've only I've I've got uh, almost half of my uh, 15 terabytes taken up right there, and that doesn't count the 24 and 48 terabyte servers that are downstairs. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. On that note, Devin, I think it's time to get out of here. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DevoCut. Hey, if you want to talk about more nerdy stuff like these hard drives, feel free to tweet me over the next two weeks. I'll be building a 24 terabyte server uh, using Unraid. So if you're interested in that, I'll post pictures. And I'm whatnot. high-fiving you from a distance because <laughs> uh, that's what I'm rocking as well. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere podcasts are distributed. You can like, rate, and subscribe. So make sure you write some comments in the YouTube section or go over to iTunes and just tell us what you think about the podcast. It helps the rankings and it helps us to do better for you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And I almost forgot, you can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com, <laughs> on Twitter at DSLRFilmNoob, and anywhere that ugly mugs like me appear on the internet. Thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and we will see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>